Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this impromptu edition of the Raw Report podcast, live and direct from uh, my kitchen. Uh, I'm your host, Gav. Tonight, I've got a mix of eclectic opinions coming from the Rotary Poor lads and I've got my right hand man Tom Atkinson and of course the always interesting Neil Graney with us here to discuss where basically Sunderland find themselves currently um, and to look at the future and hold a discussion as we plan for the third season of League One football I bet you can't wait to hear it uh, lads you alright how we doing? Yeah good thanks Yeah not too bad cheers mate Nice Neil I don't know about you like but this heat's fucking killing me like I'm sat here sweating like a gissy. I've got uh, a rum and coke while he's trying to cool himself down. I've been moving house. I was moving house in the last two days. The last thing I'd recommend anyone does like in this heat. <laughs> <laughs> but me, me and Tom were just talking before the call. He's in Florida, obviously, and he was like, oh, it's 100 degrees here. And I checked what it was here, and it's like 65 in Fahrenheit. <laughs> and I'm sat here sweating me tits off. And he's like, that's what it's like in winter. <laughs> Anyways, uh, let's get right into it and uh, basically depress everybody and take a look at the club's current financial situation because obviously, as of recording, we still haven't seen a copy of the accounts come through. Keen viewers of Kieran Maguire's Twitter page will have seen that he's basically tweeted out a load of stuff which um, indicates what's about to come out because I think he has seen, or at least indicates that he's seen a copy of the the club's finances. But last August, Methan said in his programme notes um, ahead of a game, in 2018-19, we managed to reduce that playing wage bill to circa 15 million. Still the largest in League One history, but several steps in the right direction. This season, that has been further reduced to 10 million per annum, or 12.5 million if you include payments still being made to players who have left the club. At that level of playing budget, the club is financially stable, running at around 3 million a year operational loss. The last parachute payment is mostly allocated to the final historic transfer phase in legal matters pre-player trading. And obviously, in April, back in April in the Chronicle, he added, Methan says that the Sunderland entered the coronavirus crisis in a good place financially after two difficult years of cost-cutting and aside and strategies to increase revenue, which now sees the club running a break-even model on revenues of around £20 million. The reason the club is in a position to be able to do that is because it is I would say, in the strongest financial position of any club in the EFL. Big words. Um, and it's debt-free. It has break-even business model. It's spending around 45% of its turnover on player wages. And because of the recent investment, presumably he's talking about the FPP loan, uh, has sufficient cash. So unlike a lot of other clubs who have been going through a more expansionary period, shall we say, 
With a lot more of their turnover being paid on player wages, Sunderland is now in a solid position to trade its way through these difficult times and come out the other end in one piece. Of course, we have to keep a close eye on developments, but as things stand, Sunderland is in a position where it's able to plan for the future, and by that I mean squad planning, future marketing plans, etc., because it doesn't have to spend all day desperately wondering how to pay the bills. But obviously, like I say, accounts are now delayed and obviously would only reflect last year's situation. But, I mean, having listened to what Charlie's had to say there, and I know that was a lot of words, back in April and, and obviously back in August, I mean, how how confident are you? I'll go to you first, Tom. How confident are you that we are actually in a solid position, that we're in a decent place going into the next season? I think, honestly, the toughest thing for all fans at this moment in time is the fact that the ownership, and whether that's Stuart Donald, Charlie Methven, or, or more recently Jim Rodwell, is whenever you get one side of a story, there somehow mm. tends to be another side of the story that can exist at the same time as another truth. And it's really difficult to truly understand what's going on. So, for example, if you take Methven's quote there of the 45% spending of turnover on wages, if you do like some reverse maths using that 12 to 15 million wage budget figure, then he's arguing that Sunderland's turnover is like 27 to 33 million. But I think what we need to be cautious about here is if there is an element of doublespeak, the, the parachute payments they had last year was 15 and a half million. So do you factor that into the equation? Because if that's the case, then our income moving forward would be way below 20 million, which is that break-even model that he's talking about. You're looking at 12 to 18 million pound of income. And that could even be less due to COVID because you've lost a massive amount of gate receipt and um, merchandise sales and, and uh, food and beverage sales and all that. So I think, honestly, like it's a really perilous position we could potentially be in uh, because, honestly, we don't know the, the truth of the matter, whether or not he was including the parachute payments in that speech about how good a financial position we're in, unfortunately. And I think that's really going to impact us moving forward, and that's more than likely why we let quite a few players go this summer and why the likes of McLaughlin and co are all so off, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, the problem, I guess, in in my eyes with when you when you read what Charlie has to say about certain things, you have to take into consideration that they're actually trying to sell the club and it makes a lot of sense from his point of view to paint the club in a good light. So regardless of what you think of what he's saying, he's saying it because... He wants people who might be looking to buy the club to read these things and think, oh, yeah, it might be in a good position. Get them interested, I guess. Uh, um, undoubtedly. And I mean, like, honestly, if you look at the parachute monies, and I, this isn't like exact science. This is just some research from the internet. It's suggested that in year one that we get, that Sunderland received, and that was our, obviously our first year in the championship, that disastrous season, that we got 41.6 million from the parachute monies. The second year, which was our first year in League One, when Donald and Co. took over, it was like just under 35 million. Now, obviously, fans have to ask a question at that point. Did the missing uh, black hole 20 million amount that's suddenly missing, did that come out of the parachute monies? And if so, mm. then we'd be left with about 15 million that season. And then last season, or the season that's you know just been cancelled, we, we had our final parachute instalment of 15, around 15.5 million. So next year is honestly going to be the first year where we don't have the security of parachute monies to help us. And I think you're right in the sense that, you know, that asks a big question of the club at this point in time. 
because the, that 15 million that was, you know, propping us up last year, we're not going to have. So that mm. 9 million we got from FPP, suddenly is that, you know, is that 9 million now going to prop us up next year? Is that a, a loan we're taking just to be careful? There's a lot of questions that really need to be answered. And unfortunately, the discourse we've had from the club really hasn't been massively forthcoming. It really does, like you just said, it, it feels like they've been very guarded and very clever in the way that they've said things, purely because, as everybody knows, they're trying to sell the club. Yeah. I mean, Neil, obviously going to you, right? how confident are you going forward that Sunderland are in a decent position to, to actually compete, I guess? I mean, not even looking at the, not even looking yet at the, the salaries and the squad size and the players and what have you, but just how confident are you that, you know, going into season three that we can actually compete at the top end of the league? Yeah. Um, I think a huge problem for me and kind of I'll, I'll come on to that, but the huge issue for me with the current owners is kind of anything they say has got to be taken with a total pinch of salt. So you you mentioned there in terms of they're trying to sell the club, you're trying to paint yeah. a, a more positive picture. As a fan, um, it's really worrying because anything that comes, any communication out of the club, whether it's Metfin, Donald's, Donald's obviously gone quiet, or Rodwell more recently, you take it with a pinch of salt. Um, and that create uncertainty and that's not me or any other fan doing that on purpose it's just the uncertainty that that is around the club not just the sale but as Tom's mentioned there the figures aren't clear um the parachute payments aren't clear how they finance the deal there's just no clarity in terms of who owns the club who owns the club how it came about what's going to happen moving forward um in terms of looking forward to nextly I, th- I think COVID will kind of almost level it out in terms of any disparity between teams is going to be leveled out. And I think, therefore, it becomes kind of those more successful teams in terms of recruitment over this summer will be those that are most organised and can offer the most attractive package. And I don't just mean financial package. I mean kind of which clubs are going places, kind of who's got a solid basis, um, who's got a a manager in place who the fans are happy with, all the things that Sunderland haven't got at the moment. So as a player, if I was offered a deal at one of the kind of top six that finished in this kind of cancelled season or the top eight even, I'd be looking at Sunderland and thinking, well, actually, like shit's going down there. It's a bit of a sh- like a bit of a shit storm at the moment. So if yeah. I can get a deal elsewhere, then maybe that's better for me and my family. And because players, this COVID thing is going to create that increased uncertainty for pl- players as well. We're going to see six month contracts, twelve months contracts. They're going to get less in terms of image rights and so on. I know that's not as important at League One level, but it's all of the uncertainty. So for players in terms of recruitment, they're going to be looking for some kind of certainty, some kind of solid base of a football club where they can enjoy life, enjoy the, the enjoy the football. And I just don't think Sunderland, in its current state, is going to offer that to anyone, whether it's existing players or kind of only the most loyal players of that existing squad are going to stick around and say, we can give this a go. I think that it's just total turmoil for me on and off the pitch, and 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 that's kind of my my instant thought in terms of the question that you asked. Mm. I mean, I mean, Sunderland's unique selling point has kind of gone now, hasn't it? I mean, being able to not I'm not saying that we did in every case, but being able to offer much better wages than every other club in the league, um, having that allure of being a club who were recently in the Premier League, that's gone because we've we've been down here for two years now, and and. Whatever we've tried in the past just hasn't worked. We've we you know we've tried to sign a big name striker. It didn't work. Um, 
We've brought in players from other leagues like McLaughlin and McGeoch, for instance, who we were told were playing at a level a lot higher than the one we found ourselves in, yet their impact wasn't felt entirely and we weren't able to get out of League One. So, I mean, going forward, Sunderland might have to find a different way of working. And obviously clubs we were competing against last season, the likes of Oxford, Coventry, etc., um, they weren't operating in the same market as Sunderland in terms of wages and transfer fees and what have you. So I guess, Tom, my question to you is, I mean, could this new way of... I'm not saying we're going down a new route, but is, should should Sunderland find themselves having to look in the market which the likes of Coventry and Oxford found themselves in last season, for instance? Do you see us thriving in that? Or is that now going to put some at a disadvantage? I, I mean, I'm not sure. I can't work it out in my own head whether this is going to be a, a good or a bad thing for us, but what's your thoughts? I think really there's a, a couple of issues at play here. Number one is the recruitment team. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm not the kind of person who would slag someone off or, or, or try and be overtly mean. But if you really put your hand on your heart and, you know, think about it and have a, a, a very reasonable chat about it, we haven't done good enough with our recruitment. It's It's very simple to see spent a massive amount of money on a striker who doesn't score goals and is clearly disillusioned with being at the club. Um, there's been a smattering of good signings. The likes of Jordan Willis, Luke O'Nine, Chris Maguire, pretty solid signings to be fair. And then there's been underwhelming ones as well. Um, you know, I mean, you could look at, has Max Power really lived up to, to what we thought he'd be? Has George Dobson, uh, the loan signings we brought in last year, you know, Kaz Sterling, for example, um, I would have liked to have seen more from him. And then you look at Semenio people like Semenyo, even yeah, Perfect. yeah, and then Semenyo, yeah. Uh, and then you look at we brought in people like Glenn Leuvens, and it's like bloody hell, you know what? I understand we were in a really tough position back in two thousand eighteen nineteen, but the subsequent business really hasn't done much to enamour Sunderland fans. And I, I think you know you can't just point the finger at the pe- at the likes of Hill and Corton. I know they have a, a lot to do with it, but. Ultimately, they're really underfunded. There's those two blokes trying to do all of Sunderland's business the last couple of years. We cut back massively on the scouting department. And so you've got these lads who are having to go through their contact book to try and put together a side. And I think that comes down to the fact that there's been very minimal investment, or from the outside at least, that's what it looks like, minimal investment in our recruitment. And Mm. moving forward, if this salary cap limitation comes into effect, that the EFL want to implement and for anybody who's unaware you can go find this on the BBC I think it was originally reported in the Telegraph but basically third tier sides in League One get a two and a half million pound ceiling for salaries Sunderland this year allegedly were paying somewhere between 10 and 12 and a half million maybe a little bit more so you're asking us to reduce our expenditure on salaries by 75% or more and that's just like incredible you have to have such a really insightful and uh, you know like forward thinking recruitment team to actually make that happen and we just don't have the history of it to suggest that that's going to work so I'm at a loss as to what we do suddenly we'll become really coy in the transfer market we use the academy more or we gamble on the EFL not penalizing us for one year for offering people big deals at a last roll of the dice to get promoted Either way, all three of those are worrying. <laughs> you know, you'd hope yeah. by the third season that we'd have a foundation built to then grow upon. And it, and like I say, no disrespect to the blokes who must be, it must be a difficult job, if truth be told, but they haven't really filled us with any 
excitement, enthusiasm, and if anything, we're all a bit, you know, pessimistic and dreading what's to come. Yeah, I think one of the main issues was right from the beginning in terms of um, Matt Finn and Donald kind of almost say too much about how financially strong we are and so on. So any kind of time that we've tried to spend money, it's obvious that clubs are just going to take the mick out of us and, and, and demand higher fees. And obviously the Will Grigg Netflix thing was, was kind of clear evidence of that. But I can see that would have been happening time and time again. And even if someone's worth 200 grand and someone's asking 800 grand, it's a huge amount of money to overpay. So I think I think the problem started at the very beginning. It's a kind of the, almost this kind of naive kind of, yeah, we're going to walk the league or we're going to get 100 points. Clubs are battling against each other. It's, it's kind of... the tooth and nail kind of thing it, it, it's not going to happen that clubs are just going to say oh here's our best player for like less than half half of what we we value him at etc so I think that is a starting point in terms of clubs have found that out and, and essentially if we want best players out of league one we're going to have to pay a premium because they know we perhaps have or did have have the cash to do that mm-hmm. I think going forwards I think recruitment is going to be the key thing for any club in League One and League Two, um, clever recruitment. But I think to recruit the right players, you need a playing identity and you need a club identity. And that, again, sorry for sounding down, but I don't think we've got a playing identity under Parkinson, not a clear one. He's got a fairly basic, straightforward playing style. But I think the club hasn't got identity. So if I was a young player, I'd be thinking, oh, yeah, they're good at, are they good at kind of recruiting young players and developing young players? Probably not. Uh, there's no evidence of that in the last few years or little evidence. If I was kind of a, a prominent League One player, can this club take me to the next level? Probably not. If I was a more experienced League One player, do I want to go to Sunderland for my last big contract? Maybe for the money, but again, is it going to be the right environment to play? So mm-hmm. I think I think recruitment could offer a huge opportunity if we do it right. But kind of as Tom mentioned there, recently we haven't done it very well. So how's that going to change? Particularly when there's club owners in place that want to sell the club. So they're not going to, even when it comes to agent fees, that we, we still play in way more than anyone else, they're not going to pay them. They're not going to pay fees for players while they're trying to sell the club because they don't want to lose their cash or cash that they may uh, get from a sale. So I think it, it's fairly, again, it's a fairly bleak answer because I think that's the, the truth of where we find ourselves. So obviously all clubs are at this level, but not just Sunland. Um, have the the prospect of a salary cap hanging over them. I mean, it's rumoured that the AFL are looking to adopt some pretty radical changes when it comes to salary caps. And Sunderland, of all the clubs in League 1 and League 2, will be affected worse because naturally we pay out a lot more money than other clubs do. I mean, personally, I'm I'm a little bit worried, although for, for prospective signings, Sunderland does remain a pretty... Um, I don't know, for players who've spent majority of their careers playing in the third and fourth tier, for instance, or even some players who've maybe not been getting games in the championship, being able to play for Sunderland still does have a little bit of of mystique about it. You know, players kind of wonder what if we can get it right at Sunderland, you know, playing for a big club in front of big crowds, etc., etc. Um, but I mean, just how far does that really get Sunderland, though, at this stage? I mean, like I said earlier, this is our third season at this level and we're going into it with a lot less money. I mean, how much does our reputation, I guess, um, stand up when it comes to competing for, for players? Because we're now looking 
in my eyes, and people, I see some fans on social media talking about, you know, sign Nangeli, sign Madison, sign X, Y, and Z players who've done really well in League One recently. I mean, are we in that market? Are we are we actually in that market? Or, I mean, I'm going to throw this to you, Tom. Where where do you see the club going when it comes to recruitment? Because I'm I'm totally at a loss. I mean, maybe last year when we first entered League One, we were in a position to totally blow other teams out of the water when it comes to signing the best League One players. But right now, I'm not sure. I think, truthfully, Neil touched on it just a, a few minutes ago there, but if you don't have an identity and you don't have somebody at the club who's in charge of driving forward a, a plan, and you know we've heard it a few times recently, oh, there's a five-year plan. Yeah, well, we've never seen it or we have no idea what the aims of it are. And if you don't have one on the pitch and you don't have a set identity that you want your teams to play, and I'm not talking about, you know, like the minutiae of football, but just simply, you know, Jurgen Klopp talks about Liverpool's as, you know, it's rock and roll football. It's fast, it's high octane, there's a lot of pressing, there's a lot of passing, it's quite direct at times. Dead simple, you know what kind of players you need. You need fast, athletic players who have some technical ability. And with Sunderland, we've flipped from Jack Ross, who favoured this very ticky tackerish approach that had very minimal uh, entrances into the final third and goal-scoring opportunities. And we flipped from that mid-season to a bloke who likes to play with a big target man up front and a direct style of football. And if we had somebody at the club who actually was tasked with, you know, guiding all different facets of the club in one direction, and at the core of that is the how, how Sunderland play football on the pitch to find success, then I think we'd be in a much better position moving forward. Now we're left over, and I'm I'm not nothing against the players we're left with, but there's a, a vast majority of that squad of Jack Ross signings, and they're now going to be asked to play Phil Parkinson's style of football. <laughs> and, you know, can they do that is the big question. And whether whether they can or not, I think if you're a player on the outside looking in, you haven't seen anything from Sunderland under Ross or under Parkinson, to be fair, that really gets you excited about wanting to move to Sunderland. In the in you know in the recent past that would have been I'm going to double my wages if you look at it very starkly, and I think moving forward it's you know we touched on the salary cap there but it's not just a salary cap it's actually a squad limit too, so if these uh, uh, proposals get approved and by the way the PFA are fighting that challenge because they they obviously don't want their players to lose money in the long run, but if it does get approved then we'd only be allowed twenty senior professionals at the club, and eight of those have to be homegrown. So the, the second part of that is obviously, number one, our recruitment hasn't been good enough and we don't have a guide and strategy to get us anywhere close to where we need to be. But number two, there's no real, you, sorry, you can't really point to a massive amount of players in the Sunderland team who are homegrown and are shown that there's a really good path into the first team. I mean, at present, truthfully, it's Lyndon Gooch who really we gave a chance to in the championship, and he's he's been a mainstay of the team since that point. And then Denver Hume, who was kind of thrust into the position under duress and has struggled at times, truthfully, because he really doesn't have the first-team experience he needs to compete at this level. So moving forward, you know, you could look... We'll, I'm sure we'll get to talking about the academy shortly, but mm-hmm. if you're a young player at Sunderland, there's no massive instance of you pointing and going, yep, I'm going to be in with a chance of the first team. I mean, Bally Mumba, who's probably the best talent we've got, if 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 truth be told, at the club, apparently he's off to Norwich for £350,000. Every other good youth academy prospect we've had have been sold as well. So 
Moving forward, not only do we not have the people guiding us in the right direction, which in turn turns off people who might actually be good signings for the club, but then if you're looking at the youth candidates, you're also kind of screwed because we're getting rid of the best ones. And moving forward, we might need a minimum of eight of them in our limited squad of 20 professionals. Honestly, it's just, it's kind of mind boggling, you know, the fact that we're really in what feels like a, a really horrific situation to be in moving forward. I mean, Neil, how do you feel about obviously what's to come? I guess Sunland, Sunland in the next six months or so might look very different to the one that we maybe thought six months ago. Yeah, I, I, I think the, the key for me, that I keep saying it, but the recruitment is the key for me. But the issue that we have is that we've got, we, we're in the same position that Ellis Short was under, wants to sell the club, doesn't want to spend any more money. We're in exactly that same position now, but we're much more worse off now than what we were then in terms yeah. of league status, um, the squad quality, the squad worth. And, and I think the longer you spend in League One, the less likely that kind of gravitas of, or oh, Sunderland, I'll go and sign for Sunderland. It's got less pull because... I think the average League One player is on about four or five grand a week average wage. Obviously, we pull that up um, or it's pulled down by other clubs. By the time you work that out, it, it, it's. I know we look at footballers and think, yeah, they're on great money, they overpaid. Not in League One for the job that they do, what they sacrifice. So I think the, the longer we down here, the, the less we are attractive because Lyle Taylor, for instance, the, there's lots of rumours about what went on, but he sticks with the idea that he didn't want to leave London. So all the decent prospects down south, for that kind of money that we can now offer compared to what we perhaps used to offer, they may not be interested because they may go to a, maybe a Coventry or kind of somewhere around London that have a good squad, maybe a little bit less money, but closer to home, things like that. And I think the the, the more you go down the leagues, then the more that is more important uh, to players. Where do I see us in six months? I think a lot depends on kind of when the next season starts. But if we think in the next season starts October, November time, um, we're nearly in July, so it's kind of three, four months. We should really be planning now, but because of the ownership issues um, and the recruitment team that we have now, and um, then obviously that's kind of going to stall. And I see Bristol Rovers have signed one or two players already, Jack Baldwin being one or, or rumoured to be one. Um so to really kind of, can we pick the best players that are on freeze or whatever, or do we wait a couple of months to see kind of what becomes available? Will the takeover or any takeover go ahead? Again, it's just all uncertainty, and, and that's not good for any organisation, whether it's a normal organisation outside of football, but particularly mm. within football, because there's so much uncertainty in the industry. Mm. Neil made a good point there, actually, Tom, about waiting around, I guess, and there's clubs the likes of Bristol Rovers, who were already signing good, good League One players. I mean, I'm not really going to count Jack Baldwin in that. I don't particularly rate Jack Baldwin, but they did sign Gillingham captain um, Max Aimer. Um, They've already got a decent side. There, there are teams happening already whereby um, you hear Jim Rodwell talk, I think it was last week in the Sunderland Echo, about waiting. And I think Phil Parkinson also did that. And I think he'd done an interview with the club on the YouTube channel talking about waiting and seeing what happens with, you know, the championship and et cetera before Sunderland act in the transfer market. I mean, is that the right approach? I mean, are we, are we right to wait around and wait for the championship to end and see what becomes available or should we be thinking our feet? I mean, me personally, the, the recruitment team should already have a long list in every position of players that we need, but it does feel 
if if our approach is waiting around that we aren't even prepared for prepared for what's going on now with yeah. the championship season continuing i mean what do you think about it there's you know i honestly think the and neil alluded to this earlier on but there was a huge problem where the current ownership point to the fans quite often and i know charlie methvin did it again recently in his uh his his podcast interview that we spoke about a lot and you can find it on youtube but they really set the expectations as if Sunderland were going to steamroll League One and the good times were here again. And then we brought Jack Ross in and he had a massive rebuild. And to be fair, he did a pretty decent job and struggled in his second season, which could, you could arguably point the finger to the owners who seemed to disappear in that, uh, that little hiatus after the, the disappointment of the, the League One playoff final. And then when you get rid of Jack Ross, who was maybe, you would like to think, trying to instill some kind of... Um, some kind of vision moving forward in the way he played, you bring in Phil Parkinson, and then we, when we get to this situation and, and COVID and all of the impacts from it, we're now left with a manager who was brought in for a short-term fix. So now we're stuck with, uh, I don't want to say stuck, that's a pretty negative term, but Phil Parkinson remains, and is his style of football and is his vision for the future something that's going to bring us lasting success. I think history states from him that there's no precedent set whereby fans can point to a club and go, well, look what he did with Bolton when he took them up to the upper echelons of the championship. He didn't. He got them promoted playing a pretty swashbuckle and direct style of football. And I think the owners brought him in hoping he would do the same for us. Unfortunately, we're in this position now where we've got a handful of senior players and a, a bunch of youth products and you've got Phil Parkinson as the man at the helm. And I guess a lot of fans must be thinking, you know, how are we going to play as a club moving forward? What is the vision? Can we bring young players into the team? And I'm not 100% sure that Phil Parkinson is the man to do that. Now, he, I would love it if he surprised us all and he came out and he had this brilliant style of play next year and he was using a lot of Youth Academy products and we all felt brilliant about ourselves. But all you can really judge people on is their past actions. And I don't think there's much to suggest that Phil Parkinson is is the man at the minute who could implement this long-term vision for the club that's going to bring some kind of success, unfortunately. And that's not necessarily his fault. That's down to the owners adopting a very short-term approach to trying to find some modicum of success. And that success to them is not getting Sunderland into the championship and on the up heading for the Premier League. It's getting Sunderland into the championship because it would raise the valuation of the club and then they mm. could sell it and i think that's the massive problem we're stuck in between this short-term desperate approach versus something we really needed was a long-term vision that you know we could buy into and follow and the owners have done a great job in bigging everybody up and getting everybody hyped and then ultimately when there's a failure they've crawled back into their shell and kind of avoided all of the the you know the scrutiny that's been thrown at them and that's not positive for any business moving forward to to feel like that, unfortunately. I, th- mm. I, th- I, th- I think what you said Gav- there, Gav, in terms of a list of players, I think it's almost a list of kind of what it means to be a Sunderland player and what attributes that we after and and therefore what positions we short in. I think that should be the starting point. But I think all that comes from having a club strategy, having a playing strategy, having a recruitment strategy, all these kind of overarching, longer-term operational. So you've got your short-term operational day-to-day stuff that's in place. 
and we can argue about who's good enough and who isn't good enough, et cetera, et cetera. But we'll, we'll leave that for now. But then you've got your overarching long-term strategy of which we've got absolutely zero. The, 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 the strategy of the current owners was to get us promoted as quickly as possible and then sell. That, that's abundantly clear now. Mm. There was maybe some sceptics at the beginning. So my approach, I would suggest the approach to recruitment is these are positions we short in. We've still only got one left back and we have had for a long time. We signed Declan John and he never even got in the, the first team squad. Um, these are the positions we need. These are the attributes that we're looking for in players, i.e. age, experience, kind of thirst, whatever. Um, and then that's kind of, that becomes what is our identity. And that's when we start talking to clubs, even agents, to say, right, this is what we're in for. This is what we're going to pay. Don't come back to us and say, well, will you pay this? Because we won't. And that's where, how you recruit. Look at, look at Wickham. Wickham have done it on a shoestring based on a clear identity. Yes, shit football. Don't get us wrong. But they've got a, a squad there that's small, but so tightly knit by the the um, the club off the field, as well as the playing staff and obviously the manager. They've gone through a takeover. And they're a small club. How have they gone through that takeover and so on? It's still been successful. Kicking above kind of their level. And yet Sunderland have got it so drastically wrong, given the resources we've had over the last decade. I know, obviously, these two haven't been here that long, but a quarter of a billion pounds gone through that club in the last <coughs> 10 years. And we find ourselves talking about, can we afford this player or that player in League One? It blows my mind every day. I think it's, to, to be honest, for me, it's more to do with what someone's, I think it was you said earlier, Neil, they only came to Sunderland to try and turn this around very quickly. Yeah. And because that plan hasn't worked, it's unraveling just as quick. I mean, <clears throat> how how can you possibly expect the, these people to build this club up to the standard it needs to be at to get out of League One when the, they've kind of checked out? They've checked out emotionally. They've checked out, you know, in in terms of actually being here day to day. I was I was going to ask you this next, Tom, because the whole for me the whole the day they appointed Jim Rodwell kind of was quite significant to me because although I'd been calling for some better structure at the club a lot earlier than when they actually brought in a CEO, um, I think, the, to me, they basically did it to deflect. It's a deflection tactic. Bring in somebody who can be the mouthpiece so Donald doesn't have to talk and Methan doesn't have to talk anymore. Bring in somebody who can deal with all of these problems that the club has um, to be, be the fall guy, really. I mean, what Jim Rodwell? What can he actually do? What can what what what? We're looking to the next year. We need we need some hope, yeah. and they may not they may not sell the club. They may they may not. I mean, if they've got any morals, they'll they'll sell it to somebody. But they won't just sell it to anybody. They they have to sell it to somebody who's going to do right by the club. And if the current buyers um aren't suitable, then you know. Maybe it is for the best that they hold onto it for now, but they have to maybe drop their asking price, and we can go on to that. But my point is, is that you know, what do you what do you make of the way kind of Jim Rodwell's just been thrust into the situation, made a few errors. I mean, we're now at a stage where we're at, we're now at a stage where he's got no credibility and he's been here two minutes. I know it's. I mean, it's it's incredibly disappointing because when you go back to the initial takeover and when they came on the this podcast, for example. They spoke about Dortmund models and, you know, the kind of player they wanted to bring and 
the frustrating thing is to do any of that, you would have needed a CEO and a director of football mm-hmm. installed immediately. <laughs> Yeah. So, and I like the worst thing about that is, you know, fans take a lot of stick, Sunderland fans, for apparently being miserable and causing a lot of bother. But honestly, when somebody effectively lies to you, that's tough to swallow. And I think you're well within your rights to be upset and to demand more. And I don't think, I, well, I say I don't think. Do, do the owners know that? Do they understand how much of a mess they've made? Or are they blind to that? And genuinely think that there that there's nothing wrong with what they did, and that bringing Jim Rodwell in should help alleviate the pressure and move us forward. Because if they think that's the fix now, God, like this, they must be so misguided with everything else that they've done with the club that it makes you even more worried. Especially when Rodwell comes out with the uh, you know the season card renewals and botches that entire thing to incredible levels. Like we're at rock bottom, and somehow he found a. A JCB to dig beneath the, 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 the crust of the earth and dig us just a little bit lower. Like, it's, it's mind-boggling how you can be that inept. And moving forward, that's why fans are upset, is we've been lied to, and then the man who's put in charge, apparently, to turn things around and help, makes a blunder within, well, m- multiple blunders, to be fair, within days of his appointment. And it just doesn't fill fans with hope. And I can't understand how, if you're the owners... You can't take a step back and look and go, Jesus Christ, we fucked this up big time, didn't we? And come out and say, look, we messed it up. And be and moving forward, you could be really clear with your plan. You know, like I said, they've mentioned the five-year plan. We have no idea what it is. And I think that's what's annoying fans is the fact that we're basically left in the dark with all these false promises that everybody thought were brilliant and none of them have come to fruition. And we're at our lowest point ever in consecutive years and then we're stuck here picking up the pieces and then, then they tell us they have, you know, the, the indignity to then turn around and say, oh, by the way, you owe us your season ticket money and if we don't play, you can have a free stream and pass. It's just like kicking the gut after kicking the gut. I, th- I, th- I think the timing of that appointment as well, obviously the, the, the overarching plan that I'm talking about, the long-term strategy that they talked about, the five-year plan that they talked about, that is the CEO's responsibility to deliver. That's his kind of, that's what he does or what she does to kind of make a company a success. Now, we appointed that CEO after 18 months or so, just after the football industry was stalled. So we've put someone in place to lead a whole organisation that have just placed its entire staff on furlough or the vast majority of its staff on furlough. So you've got a guy, another salary um, being paid to essentially do something himself, which he royally cocked up in the first two or three days. He's got no one reporting into him or very little or very few staff because they furloughed. It it just blows my mind that they found he, I read about business every single day, newspapers, industry. I've never seen another organization appoint a CEO. It's, it's never come to me in terms of what I've read to say, right, we're gonna appoint a CEO right now while all of our staff are in furlough. It just makes no sense whatsoever. They would have been better to use that salary, keep some people in the organization without to say right this is what we need you to do to keep fans happy to keep the club shop ticking over every single industry out there i've I've got friends in all kind of industry working at home setting up kind of telephone direct it's easily done but these lot have just checked out and said well actually we'll just put everything on hold and then we'll just employ another one of our mates and the ceo to essentially it was a pr move to try and appease people when really yeah it was people saw through it from a mile off in the first two or three days. 
he's shown he's arrogant and he's shown his kind of inability to understand what the region's about, what the club's about, and most importantly, what the fans are about. And that's one of his prime objectives. And he's totally got it wrong. Totally. That, that, and the timing of that is makes it worse. I was I was going to come on to the furlough subject, actually. I mean, I was wondering mainly about your thoughts on the way the club have dealt with it, because to me, it seems bizarre the way that they've went about things. I mean, you touched on it there, even with things like the club shop and um, ticket office and staff. I mean, it just seems like we're we're stuck in the mud. We're, we're, not, we're not moving. We're not, yeah. I mean, while every other business in the UK is trying to get back on its feet, someone's kind of waiting around, yeah. hoping the government keeps paying our wages as long as possible. I, th- I, th- I think the term is to pivot to kind of the, the, the yeah. entrepreneurial company would come up with a different plan. You, you see Hayes, for instance, took over all those Thomas Cook shops, the industries on a task, and they are working, I know for a fact they work in seven days a week, trying to kind of make their business work in different ways. I see event yeah. companies doing virtual events. The idea is when, when you're kind of, when there's a shitstorm in the external environment, when something that you can't control, you react to it. All we've done is shut the doors and said, right, we'll kind of, we'll do what everyone else tells us to do. Why not put some people in place to say, right, this is your challenge or instead of furloughing you, this is what we want you to do. So I paid for playing on the pitch. Obviously, it was cancelled. We're not getting our money back yet. Why didn't they say, right, you there, that's not going to happen this year. It's because A, they're going to lose money, that's in their bank account. And B, they would have had to kind of initiate that. But that would have kept how many hundreds of lads or, or lasses have, have paid for play on the pitch, a deposit or in full. And we sat here waiting, saying, where's our... It's not a lot of money, but it's just a yeah. simple customer transaction that could well, have been reversed. And it's, it, and it's just kind of right. That's a clear message that actually, yes, there's no football, but we care about you a lot and we're going to kind of service you a lot. And like the club shops shut down. There's people who ordered stuff before. They're not getting orders. They're getting the same out-of-office emails or kind of standard emails. They're selling club shirts for two quid a pop. We've literally turned it. It's You might as well go along to see them and, and go to a kind of car boot sale. That, the, the club reminds me of a car boot sale. <laughs> they've, they've got loads of produce there that used to be way better, and they're trying to sell it as much as they can, whether it's a streaming pass, whether it's a, yeah. something out of the club shop, whether it's an experience... It, it, it's just kind of bottom level. It, it's, you know, it's worse than Sports Direct, and that's an insult to Sunderland fan. You know what blew my mind with the season ticketing? So we had a little chat about it in, in the general group chat with Roka Report, and a bunch of guys and, and girls in that chat who, some some people work in the world of business, some people work in the world of finance, there's a massive variety of people, but just in a very offhand way, talking to each other, we came up with a host of ways in which the club could have sweetened the deal to the point where fans might have, you know, been open to, to giving their money back to the club. So, like, as just an example, we spoke about, you know, well, why didn't the club, if they want, if they needed the money, why didn't they come out to us and say, look, we're desperately in need of the season ticket money for next year. If not, we're, you know, we're really going to struggle. This is your opportunity to jump in. You make a big marketing campaign about how the the fans are basically helping save the club at this point, and then you've got all this Adidas stock that's about to go to go. You know, it's basically about to become redundant because we signed a deal with Nike, Nike, and it's just mental. You got all this excess stock. Why didn't you say it to everybody? Right, you get a X amount of training gear, 
while yeah. while uh, while supplies last. And mm-hmm. I tell you what, we'll give you one free ticket to the Black Cats bar that you can cash in at some point when things open up. And you know, we'll give you a little bit of a reduced price on the stream and pass. And if you, we'll give you X, Y, and Z things if you help us. Yeah. And there was just none of that, and it just came across as so arrogant and out of touch that no, the wonder the fans are pissed off. How could you not be? It was, it was, it was desperation. It was something that could have been written on a fag packet to say, right, this is what we'll do. There was no consideration, no entrepreneurial thinking. Even if they'd, I'm due about 40 quid refund on my season tickets, if they said, right, we're not going to give you that, but we'll give you the, the, the new Nike shirt next season. They could have got everyone in the brand new Nike shirt, having yeah. not had to refund that at its time of need now, when it's most desperate as a club. Keep that money and then whoever does turn up on day one of next season, if we allowed in the stadiums, pretty much everyone's got team colours. It's August or September or whatever. Everyone's, But everyone needs to go to the club shop to pick that up. So therefore, while you're there, you're spending money on all these other things while you're there. Because yep. everyone knows you don't just go to the club shop and buy a, a shirt. You'll get the shorts, you'll get the socks, you'll get other stuff, training gear, whatever. Get people into the shop or get at least get people onto the yeah. website, which, by the way, that website... It, it is literally nineteen ninety nine. Well, that web that website was built years ago. I mean, it was built when Stuart Vaux worked for the club. Yeah, it's it's the entrance. You can tell there's no there's no SEO in it. There's no kind of there's no footprint kind of. So even if someone does visit the website, they've got no idea of what they do on there or what they could how they could communicate with that fan to come back, etc. It's the most basic piece of rubbish in terms of a website uh, at a time when. And this is what I mean by staff that have been furloughed. They should have had staff in there to say, right, what can we do better from a customer service point of view when we yeah. get back to close to normal and then we'll have something to launch. So when football's back, when whether COVID's kind of, whether there's a vaccine or whether the EFL say, right, 20,000 people allowed in, boom, this is what we've got to offer. And that's what the staff should be working on now, not, not letting the government pay 80% of staff. Because for, as a member of staff, that just means... You've been furloughed because you've got to be furloughed. The industry's at a standstill. Football's not at a standstill in that respect. So for as a member of staff, I'm sat there thinking, well, I'm, I'm worthless. I can't do anything. I can't even work from home. I can't contribute from home. Whereas other companies, other industries have kind of kind of invested in their staff and said, well, actually, we're going to set you up at home. We're going to invest in equipment. We're going to do whatever to make sure that your life is normal. Sorry, Neil. Gav, how much money did you say Blackpool had made in like a day when they um they had some like uh, offer on at the club shop and they brought a bunch of staff back in? I think you oh, mentioned yeah. it in I the chat. I, no, was I, it like they made fifty grand or something in a day, wasn't it? Yeah, it was obscene. It was obscene amount of money. I can't remember exactly, but yeah. But just going back to Neil's point, you know, if you can raise, you know, if those people coming in and it's halfway through the calendar year, so technically you're only paying well six months left of their wage or whatever, if you want to look at it that way. If they come in and make a, a, a multiplication of their own salary, they're not only paying their own wage by being in and being productive, but surely then they're giving something back to the club and, you know, earning their money effectively. So it just reeked of, like, again, short-termism. What can we do to, to minimise any damage? Not thinking about, right, this is an opportunity for us where everybody is vulnerable and in need of their the pillar of their community, which is the club, how can we step up and do something that's really productive? And whether that be, you know, helping local charities, and I know they did do this, and the foundation of, like, always do a magnificent job, 
but really pushing that instead of the let's all support Cologne, for example, in the Bundesliga. Yeah. You know, like focus back on your own community. How hard is that? It's just so short-sighted. They've been trying to sell away tops from two seasons ago for two quid each. <laughs> they sold a th- if they've got a thousand of them and they sold them all, the club's made two thousand quid. What is that in value compared to saying, right, we've got 2,000 tops, come and pick them up. Anyone in the local community or any charities or yep. um, just just come and take this. It means more to you than what it does to us. Just come and take it. Rather than saying, buy it for two quid and then it'll be 4.95 to deliver it, but we can't deliver it yet. <laughs> that, that was the, I, I remember that back in November when they sold the, um, the poppy badges. It was the half sun and half poppy badge. And there were three pound, I think three pound each on the site. But it was four ninety nine delivery. Yeah. Who's, who's buying that? There's just no no common sense. Offer free delivery, and people will go back and back and back and, and, yeah. and look at different stuff. It, it's a base. It's absolute basics for any organisation. But I I don't think they're necessarily inept or kind of incapable. They just don't care. That yeah. that's that, that that's the struggle. Exactly. That is the struggle. It's it's there's no care. We we are Tom's in Florida. I'm wherever I am, you're in Sunland. We're, we're sat talking about these things, shooting the shit. We've just came up with a multitude of better ideas than anything we've seen implemented by the club. It's like, where, the, who, who's having these conversations? The blokes who own this club, that can talk the talk, right? But they cannot even crawl the walk. It's like, you know, when you, you know, when you like speak to somebody, whether it's like with Roker Report or in your company, and somebody's got all these mint ideas, and then nobody steps up and does anything. And you're just left there like, well, who's picking up the pieces? That's like magnified by a thousand times with the club at the minute, because it's as much as people point to it and say, well, it's a business. It's not. It's part of the community. And that's who you're supposed to be able to turn to during these times. And those are supposed to be the people who grab everybody by the scruff of the net and drag them up. And if you just feel like you're nothing to them, and they're everything to you, then you're alienating a group of people. And going back to, like, as a business, you're alienating them moving forward from your business. And that's just, like you say, it's just staggering that there's this callousness of people who just don't want to really do anything that has more value than just a number on an Excel document. And for me, that's really worrying. And and, and going back, like, bringing this conversation full circle, going back to the players, how must they feel? Like, seeing all of this and seeing the fans upset, like, they read our website, you know, they listen to yeah. podcasts, like, Lyndon Gooch retweeted the George Honeyman one, they they follow all this, so, like, how must you feel as a, as a player when the people above you, you're looking at them and going, what are they doing? Like, I, like they, and they get stick because of it, so, like, that cannot be conducive to a, a good environment on the pitch either, like, there's no way that... Uh, Phil Parkinson can shield those players and, and keep them ignorant from everything that goes on. No chance. And it just, it's, kill, it's killing the team. It's killing the fan base. It's killing the team. It's killing the business. It's like, how inept, honestly, how inept can you be? You, you can't defend it. You know, when, you've, when you say that, when you've got Premier League money coming in, it's easier to plug the, plug the holes, I guess. It's easier to make it look as though everything's rosy and... yeah. It's easier to do that when you've got when you've got all this money coming in, but when Sunderland don't have that money coming in, it it feels like everything's come crashing down very quickly. Yeah, yeah. It, it, mm-hmm. it, it, in business terms, it's about added value in the Premier League. The added value is the fact that you're in the Premier League. 
fact that you're playing against the Liverpools, etc., yeah. etc. Et in League One, you get your added value from different from the customer service, from the matchday experience, from the website, etc. Et it all means something different. But whether you're kind of a loyal fan, twenty years, or a new time fan, or sorry, a first time fan, or a corporate fan, it's about those little added value things that you think. Well, actually, this organisation cares. It's in League One, but it cares about kind of what I do and. The Premier League, that goes out the window because you're more or less there for the Premier League and whoever you're playing, not necessarily just Sunderland or the team. You're there for a whole multitude of different things that League One just doesn't offer. So you've got to plug that kind of added value gap with other things. And, and yeah. there's, there's really good examples in League with Middlesbrough do brilliant in terms of, uh, it pains us to see it, but Middlesbrough do a brilliant fan experience for the home fans. Doncaster do a brilliant fan experience even for away fans. They've got things in place to look after the people who invest in that football club. We do absolutely zero for our home fans, never mind the away fans. And and, and it's just as simple of any organisation. Create a value and stick to it, and that's linked to your identity, etc., etc. I could go Mm. on for days, but (laughs) the fact is they're not doing any of it. That's a frustrating thing. I was I was going to go on next to refunds because we've obviously talked about the way the club have dealt with things recently. Um, refunds, obviously, Jim Rodwell did an interview with the club website talking about how um, you know he'd made a mistake in his first communication with the fans about season cards, blah blah blah. Um, but obviously, we got on then to refunds, talking about how um. Season ticket holders would get money back for the final three games, I think, of the season. Um, that was how many weeks ago? Two, maybe. You know, we haven't heard a thing. Um, again, I know we've we've kind of covered all of this in terms of furloughed staff and what have you, but I mean, I remember I read something pretty much straight after Jim Rodwell's statement went out on Twitter. Where a fan said, you know, how how come Ticketmaster can refund people within hours when it comes to a cancelled gig? Yeah. But apparently they're working with Sunderland and what's it been weeks? We haven't heard a thing. We haven't heard a thing. Yeah, and I I think it comes down to your, your data management system or whatever process is in place to say, right, this person needs a refund. This is how we do it. And again, that's something that furloughed staff could have been doing. <laughs> so when the AFL said, right, season cancelled, right, now that's cancelled, is your refund? And it's so it's almost as though they're that desperate to hold on to the cash, so the cash is within the organisation. And it, it, sorry, Gav, it was just uh, I'm going off in one again, but uh, no, go for it, go for yeah, it. Yeah, it's a simple kind of, but even they've got everyone's email address, they've got everyone's address, they've got everyone's phone number. Either not everyone's on email. Older people, my, my dad, for instance, they could have basically said, right, these are your four options. Things like, do you want a new shirt for next season? Do you want a club shop voucher? Do you want your money back? Do you want to donate a charity? They should have had four or five options ready for when the AFL said, right, season curtailed. And then at that point, communicate with fans to see what their preference is and then go ahead with that. And and put a timescale on it to say, right, within 14 days, everyone would have been happy. But the fact that, as you mentioned there, two or three weeks ago, Season was curtailed and we've heard nothing. Not even, but we don't. As season ticket holders, we don't even get the odd email to say kind of Merry Christmas anymore, anything like that. And that doesn't mean anything to me, but it means pe- something to other people or 
Absolutely, yeah. The, the Ben's eight and he's in junior. He gets nothing out of that junior membership. Absolutely zero. Like there's there's no value in it again. I forgot all about that actually. It's spot on. The but but that was a great idea when the when the new owners came in. Uh, yeah. I mean and it could have been something and it was nothing. It was just like let's get a bit of cash, you, look, you know. You look next door at the foundation of lies, which runs as a charity and they have yeah. pivoted, they've done Kind of innovative. They've done things online. They've done online coaching tutorials. They invest in the staff. I know they send them staff on. The staff are talking to each other daily. I can guarantee that's not happening within the professional football club with loads of money swelling around the industry. There's a charitable foundation next door doing it well. Why can't yeah. mm. they put something in place to do it well? So you know, as a as a as a season ticket holder, season card holder, sorry. Um, the the streaming passes thing really rankles with me because all right let's be honest we're all adults anybody in the northeast who's watched a sun and stream away from home you know they found a way around it there's a way around all these things with to to be able to watch the lads play although it was intended for away fans uh, sorry international fans um we've all found a way around it in order to be able to watch the games so the the offer of a streaming pass seemed kind of redundant to most people because we were already very aware of how the streaming pass sort of system worked. We were like, well, you know, I know for a fact that international fans are paying £110 a season. Yep. You're asking us to pay £310 just for home games. I mean, for me, as a, as a season card holder, that's not enough. That's why I've cancelled my renewal because I knew... Flat out, I wasn't getting value for money. What have the club done to convince people like me not to go back on my agreement, not to cancel my renewal, to be there for them next season? What have they done? I mean, there's nothing. And again, it comes down to communication. Had they had, they had four or five ideas to say, right, this, obviously the club needs money. Every single fan recognises the fact that whatever happens in the next year, the club needs money. That's it. Everybody knows the club is is desperate. Yeah. Desperate for our money. So yeah. why not be honest? Why not be honest? But why not be honest and say, right, how can we create value from other... Essentially, what you get to, you get to actually your customers are creating their own value. So some customers will say, well, actually, I don't mind paying this, but I would like... I don't know, give me the streaming pass, but I would always also like access to the junior club or whatever. Or And essentially, you, you, you split your fan base into maybe four or five groups that you've never seen before or never kind of, because of the externality of kind of COVID and everything that's going on. But at least if you talk to them about that and say, right, what, there's 24,000 season ticket holders, all of them will have good ideas. As Tom mentioned, we've threw ideas around on the chat. Some of them may not be practical. Some of them may not make money. Some of them may make, you, you know what I mean? It, it's kind of, but at least communicate. Someone could have been sending us a survey to say, right, how sh- how do you think we should deal with it? And they come out and say, fan groups said this, or fan groups did this, or fan groups haven't been very positive, etc. They don't talk to us. So, it is, so of course, we're going to just do what we do off our own back. Mm. Um so, so again, it comes out of communication and having an overarching longer-term strategy to deal with what's being thrown up, whether that's not going up, whether that's being relegated, whether that's kind of... It, any external the kind of influence on the organisation needs to be dealt with, and they just haven't done that. Anything to add there, Tom? Yeah, actually, I, was, I knew there was a, 
a, a Scottish team who did something similar, not not similar to Sunderland, but similar to what we were talking about there and engaging the fans. And it was actually Kilmarnock. Um, they have a supporters trust. And I know there's a whole debate we could have on that about the fact that Sunderland need one. But actually, they raised something like 73, maybe even more now, 70-something thousand pounds to Kilmarnock, which for a club that size is quite significant, if truth be told. And the way they did it was just good. You know, like they, they released this statement and they said, we've looked at a range of options, but the simplest solution is to offer the option of a refund to our season ticket holders for the value of the matches they've missed. Should every season ticket holder take up this option, we calculate the final cost of the club will be total £142,000. We want to make this clear. There will be no judgment or condemnation of any supporter who wishes to take up this option. Some supporters have already indicated to us they don't wish any money back and we thank them wholeheartedly for this gesture. And I just think, like, you play it that way. You say, look, here's the cost to the club. And I know they didn't go so far as to say we're going to be bust if you don't help us. But they came out and said it's going to cost us a lot of money to do this. Like, anything you can do will help. And that's when you see goodwill from people, not turning around and giving them a shit deal. Like it's it's yeah. it's really that simple. And if and that's what worries me, truthfully, is if the people running the club right now can't see simple things like that, then there's no chance they're going to implement the kind of strategies we spoke about in terms of long term, um, long term strategies or 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 approaches in place to find lasting success. I know Charlie Methven talks about like sustainable club. Uh, we're going to break even on our turnover. But like we said at the top of the show, does that include parachute monies? Because if it does, then you're fucked next season. It's that simple. And I, it just there's every reason to be worried and every reason to be panic, panicked. Sorry, And the club aren't giving us any shred of hope that we can cling on to. And that is just massively depressing. And that's why fans are upset. And that's why... Mm. We haven't been our usual selves. Any fan will tell you that if there's a team on the pitch playing to the, their utmost and going at it, we'll be behind them 100% and we're the best fans to be around. But if the people at the top who govern the entire structure aren't doing the basics right and are giving us false promises and making ludicrous decisions, how can you expect the fans to buy into it? It's really, really that simple. And that's why podcasts like this take on this really bleak tone, because truth be told, there's very little to be hopeful about, unfortunately. Um, and just, I won't go round and round in circles and, and, and reiterate points, but it's just really clear to see that there's nothing in place at the club to take us forward. Everything is geared for some kind of short-term success or short-term sale. And fans, if they haven't figured this out already, need to wake up and understand that, because Truth be told, moving forward, it's only going to be us as fans who are capable of inciting any kind of positive change, unfortunately. Well, for, or maybe fortunately, for all we know. But truthfully, it's on our backs now and we really need to stand up as a group of people, whether you're international like myself, whether you're at home in Sunderland or in the northeast or in England, wherever. We need to stand up now and do something to get our club back. We really, really do. It's it's a depressing situation. but. I think if we pull together, we can really make something or make a positive change. I, th- I, th- I think one word to, to kind of sum, sum it up, and it, it's just contempt. I, th- I think the whole club is, is took the fan base as a kind of, are they loyal? So there's 24,000 season tickets. So regardless of what's happened, they'll take the pass or they'll be back or whatever. 
there's only so much kind of you can take before you you kind of even lose your dignity as a Sunderland fan. It's there's only so much you can take before someone says, "Well, actually, you're now taking the piss out of my loyalty." And well, it, 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 essentially, and that's I mean, I've cancelled my direct. How many years have you been a season ticket holder? Um, on and off because of work, I've, I've been going thirty six, sorry, thirty four years now. So I've, I'm a season ticket holder of twenty five years, and it's like I've cancelled for the first time in my life. Same I mean, in. you know, you know what I mean. And there's people a lot older than us who've been going a lot longer than us who've who've done that. My my dad's late seventies, and he checked out at Christmas time. He, he, he's basically he, there was one. He was unwell for one game, and he's never been back since. And there's not a chance under this ownership that he'll ever be back. And it, 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 it like he, he pretends he's not bothered, but he he's kind of. It's mm. this idea that you kind of distance yourself from no. kind of inherent failure. You, you don't yeah, want to be associated sad. with it anymore. Yeah, that's sad. Year old, that is, it is. It, it's, it's, it's fucking it's sad. It's the main thing he does. As a, as a 78-year-old, socially, it's the main thing he does. It makes me It makes me really angry. It makes me really fucking angry, man. It's, yeah. it's unreal. I mean, touching on that, there's football clubs been ringing fans, older fans who are kind of, um, like because of COVID, who just shielded and stuff. Now, even stuff like that, it's just tiny little things that collectively go a long way and don't have nothing to do with how good the team is on the pitch. I mean, I don't know this for a fact, but has Chris Waters been working or has he been furloughed? I mean, if the fucking players have been furloughed, stuff like this is like really important to a football club. It's not just about what happens on a Saturday yeah. between three and five. A football club in Sunderland specifically. And I say specifically because I think we are quite unique in this sense. It's about a lot more than that. It's yeah. football is huge, man. Twenty four seven, yeah. Yeah, and 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 like you say, there's clubs out there checking in on fans and what have you. Some of them, our owners have just checked out. They've they've put everyone on furlough and let them sit at home. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> I, I I wanted to get onto one a uh, couple of other things, but one of the main things was the um. The ongoing presence of non-executive directors on social media, and particularly um, Dave Jones, famous for his uh, appearance on Sky Sports, and of course Tom Sloans, who works for BetDAC, who were the club's official shirt sponsor last season. Um, we've seen them active on social media in the last couple of days, basically quelling um, some of the some of the words spoken by one Charles Methven. Um, we all know about it. Everyone listening will have either heard or read what Charlie had to say about Sunderland. But I mean, my the my point in bringing this up was that the non-executive directors have kind of been thrust into the forefront when it comes to Sunderland because one, they're present on social media, and two, they've decided to engage with people via those methods. Um, I mean, what what I want, I just want to gather your thoughts on. Their their ability to impact what's actually going on because Dave Jones has said that he's very keen to make an impact, but I mean, what, what how much can a non-executive director really influence anything? I feel I, I must admit I, I have a real degree of sympathy with Sloans and Sloans and Jones. That sounds like the <laughs> world's worst country crime sleuths. <laughs> I do have a real degree of sympathy. I mean, as a non-executive director, there's very little hard impact that you can have I, you know i don't think you can really pass any kind of physical change within the club you can suggest you can offer your feedback but i'm not really sure how much you can 
honestly do as, as an individual to, to impact or elicit change. What my hope is, especially with Jones, because he's been so vocal recently about saying Methvin doesn't speak for the board and, and that uh, he really wants to make some kind of change. I really hope that they just basically keep the communication lines between the boardroom and the fan base. Yeah. And the big worry is the fact that if these two guys who are big Sunderland fans, and I have a lot of respect for them and thrilled that they had the opportunity to do this, but if if they weren't consulted, for example, with the season ticket situation and didn't offer their honest input, which you would really hope as a Sunderland fan is, what the fuck are you doing, to Jim Rodwell, then that would be worrying. However, I think really to to see something positive from them moving forward, we just need to see more um more conversation from them, more discourse, and not lip service. And I'm I'm not accusing them of lip service, but just as an example, we've heard about this five year plan. Tell us what it is. Like you two, uh, privy to boardroom discussions. Speak speak to us. Tell us what's going on. Be a voice for us. And I I don't think, truthfully, there's anything wrong with them doing that. You know, like being being the conduit between the fan base and the ownership and being vocal about what's going on. And, mm. and if, if they don't, I think the big worry fans have, and which is why people maybe are starting to point the finger a little bit and say, what's going on, is because are things so bad behind the scenes that you don't want to be associated with it? Mm. Because if that's the case, you wouldn't speak up. And if they're not speaking up and talking to us about it, then fans are going to fear the worst, unfortunately. Yeah. So my plea to them would be, engage with us, tell us what's going on. You know, yeah. like if it's bad news, tell us. We need to know. Yeah, and I, I just think that's what we need. Sorry to step in, Tom, but yeah, no bother. I've got to know Tom Sloan specifically quite well in the last year or so. He's just a really nice man, like a really nice person proper Sunderland person from Hilton Castle who has worked very hard to get where he's got to. I mean, nobody's handed Tom anything. He's a really, really hard-working, proper Sunderland yeah. bloke who just loves Sunderland. But, like, that actually worries us because I really... And, I, and I, don't, I don't speak ill of Tom here at all, but it worries me that they've seen that quality in him. The fact he is just so positive about Sunderland. I mean, I've never met somebody who loves Sunderland that much yet. That's the person they've looked to for reflection, you know, and I'm I'm kind yeah. of worried that maybe, if, and I don't like I say I don't want to be critical of him because he's such a nice man and he is such a passionate Sunderland fan. I mean, if he wasn't on that side of the fence, he would be yeah with us, you know, championing yeah. the cause. He is a he is the one of the biggest Sunderland fans I've ever met. But like, ha, you know, do you get what I'm trying to say? It's like difficult, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Is that the kind of person to critique the club? Yeah, I think is what you're yeah. saying. Like, is he the right kind of mentality you need in the boardroom coming back at you say, as as the red team saying like, no, soz Jim, you cannot just yeah. be offering a stream and pass. And he might have, for all we know, he really might have. But I do get your point, Gav. Like, if somebody loves the club so much, do they want to cause disruption? There's a lot of Sun fans who've been blocked by him just because they don't agree with what he's said and, yeah. and stuff on social media. And it kind of show, it gives the impression that he's, I don't want to use the term happy clapper, but somebody who certainly sees the good in everything Sunderland do. Yeah. And that, that's, that's got to be difficult to when it, when it comes to sitting around a table with these people, telling them exactly what you think of them. I mean, I don't know. I, th I, I think for me, those two appointments is the issue. Well, it's an issue for me as a fan is that I don't expect too much of them because of the positions that they are in. Um, they are non-exec mm. directors. So their influence... 
I think, again, um, and I'm sure that the two very clever, successful people, I'm sure they weren't naive enough to see this as only this, but I think it was a PR exercise by the club at the time to kind of buy the club some time to say, well, actually, we'll bring so, uh, some huge football fans in, one very local, one very high profile, and that will buy us some time because that's when things were kind of starting to... We never saw ourselves in this position, but they were starting to go wrong at that time. So I think I, th- I think my expectation of those two, and that's why I think it's unfair to criticise those two um, unless we know exactly what's gone on. If they were part of that decision-making about streaming passes, then fair enough, criticise. But if if we don't know that, then it's our expectations can be fairly limited in terms of their authority, um, mm. their input in, in that respect. Um, so for, I mean, if Thomas Lund is getting loads of grief and he's in a position where really he can't kind of make decisions, he can give advice and he's getting loads of grief on Twitter, then I don't blame him for blocking people. Um, if he's not in the position to answer those questions or those insults particularly. Um, and the same for Dave Jones. He's not going to come out every, he's not going to respond to every single tweet and so on. He's came out when he thought Metvin's been out of line and said, well, actually, we need to stop this. And I think that's a positive thing, but our expectations need to be fairly fairly limited. And that's not because they are limited. It's because their influence in their current roles is limited. And that- Sorry to interrupt there, but for anybody listening, because I know we rely a lot on the fact that everybody who listens is on Twitter, as an example. For anybody who doesn't know, as an example, very recently, I think it was yesterday, it got brought up the fact that, you know, the likes of Sloan's and Dave Jones are getting a little bit of abuse by some of the fans and, you know, that that's not great look for the, the fan base, blah, blah, blah. Dave Jones did reply to that or address that issue. And he said, you know, it, it doesn't worry him because he, he, he would feel like we do in that exact same position. But I thought the really interesting bit is that he noted that anything he, sa- he said at that point wouldn't matter because he understands that it would just be talk and the talk. He knows that he has to act is, what, is literally what he said on, on Twitter. So for any fans out there who weren't sure, like Dave Jones has almost made a bed for himself at this point. He's turned around and said that, you know, it's up to him now to really elicit positive change. And I think that's what we have to judge these guys by, is not what perceptions might be, but what we genuinely see from them. Mm. I, I, final thing, I guess, just to come on to before we wrap up. Um, we've saw the the announcement from the Red White Army this week that they intend to form a supporters trust or at least allow their members to vote on the formation of a supporters trust. Um, I guess at the, at, at this stage with Sunderland in League One in an ownership conundrum, I guess, having a supporters trust there t- t- so that, you know, the worst comes to the worst, we can fall back on it, we can... We can try and get involved in some sort of capacity with the ownership of the club. It's beneficial. I mean, I was just wondering, do either of you have any sort of thoughts on the concept of a supporters trust? I mean, it's fairly new to Sunderland supporters. Um, it's good to see, I guess, that the most prominent fan group, which I, I class the Red and White Army as that, because they represent the most people have designed to become and form a supporters trust. I mean, what do you, what do you lads think of that? I think for any kind of trust or organisation, that the key thing is that you've got to have opposing views. You can't have a bunch of people, whether it's a small sample of people that kind of speak for a bigger kind of population, or whether it's kind of a more kind of wider population contributing in in a more quantitative way. 
I think the key thing is that you've got to kind of you only keep something like that going if you've got opposing views. So you're always challenging kind of what's said within that group. And there's also there's almost a democracy. If you get to a point where where essentially you've got kind of a line of command, a hierarchy, then I think the, the success of those kind of kind of organisations or structures are, are fairly limited. Um, it's I think it's something that we need because of the lot of stuff that I've talked about, particularly is about kind of what do the fans want? What do the fans value? What does the community interaction look like? How can the club impact the community on non-match days? I think, obviously, Charlie came out with we not educated in business terms, and a lot of fans will put, put their hands up and say, well, actually, I haven't got a clue what the finances mean. I don't know what this means or that means. But that doesn't mean to say that fans can't contribute in different ways. That can be positive and, and, add, and add kind of value. So I think... The idea of a trust to me is a can be a positive thing if done correctly, and there's lots of examples around the world of how it can be done well. But I think the key thing is that there's got to be opposition within it to make sure that there's opposing views, and there's also got to be kind of again what are the values of that trust and what do they focus on above. I, I don't see a football trust essentially running a football club. I, I think we're a million miles away from that, but I certainly mm. see a football a supporters trust contributing to the conversation of how a football club is run. No, good point. That's my point. No, good point. Tom, have you got anything to add there? Yeah, I think, honestly, if you're going to have a good supporters' trust, then my personal opinion is you need a, a really good figurehead who people will buy into immediately. Um, I think Dave Jones would have actually been a good appointment as a lead spokesperson for a supporters' trust. Or someone like Ian Watmore, Kieran Brady. There's three names. And I think as well, if, if the, the, the leadership at the club are, are, are poking at the fans saying, well, you don't understand business, well, then get some business people involved and, and educate mm. the fan base on what's going on. And I think, honestly, Neil made a great point there. I think if you do it for, do, for, for the sake of doing it and you don't have a proper structure in place or people who can elevate it to the next level, then fans will just view it as a rabble of fans who want to just thrash things out around a table. And that's really not what it's about. It's about a group of people acting in the best interests of a larger collective. So I think they would really need somebody who's a real positive figurehead at the helm of it, who people understand, uh, who people understand one and number two respect or have some admiration for. And like I say, get the, the right people in, get some communications executives in there, get some marketing people in there, get some business people in there who could repo- act as like a riposte to the club, you know, come back when... Charlie Methvin says you don't understand business and be like, well, actually, we do. And this is what we think should happen. So that would be my, my input on it. You need to be a really, a really uh, heavy hand who can come back to the club and have the right people to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a good point to wrap it up. Um, I've went through half a bottle of <laughs> spice rum. I've literally done a half a bottle. In. That's how depressing things are. I've just kept drinking and drinking. I feel a bit. Is that, is that why you were getting shouty earlier on, Gav? That's it. I was getting a bit angry. I've run out. I've run out. No shops open. Shit. No. No. Cheers, lads, for uh, for jumping on tonight. Like I say, it's it's never good talking about the shit things, but people need to hear this stuff, man. It's 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 something's in a bad place, and I don't care whatever way anyone tries to dress it up. We're in a bad place. And the more fans communicate and the more, more we talk and the more we act together, the better these things are. These issues are going to... These people will go. 
Sonnen was here a long time before Stuart Donald and Charlie Methan once a Tory and will be here a long time after them, but we have to work together. We have to we have to we have to come together, we have to talk more, we have to communicate more and hopefully we come out the other end a lot better. But I'm blathering, I'm pissed. Like I say, I've been I've been through half a bottle. <laughs> there we go. Cheers lads, thanks very much All for coming right. on the night. Cheers. Take it easy, cheers Ciao. boys. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.